This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. And that is why cultural work is so important because it is already illegal to kill un- unarmed black people. We can create as many more laws to hold police departments accountable, but if juries don't view our humanity enough to hold police accountable, then they know they can continue to kill with impunity without any consequence. And, the, and no particular law will change that. We have to change written rules and we have to change unwritten rules. I've said on this podcast before that it's important to highlight the people who are doing the real work, the people in the trenches really making a difference because sometimes we forget or we just get so discouraged that we think nobody cares when in fact there are more people than we think who are out here dedicating their lives to fighting for marginalized people. Well, my guest today is not only dedicated to that fight, but he's also willing to take on some of the biggest and baddest in the course of that fight to make sure that justice is done. Facebook, Fox News, Sony, a whole bunch of others. Not a day goes by when he or his organization isn't speaking truthfully and honestly on behalf of people of color. He runs the nation's largest online racial justice organization. Uh, With it being an election year, he has been out there helping everyday people understand what's at stake and why their vote is important and which candidates stand on the side of racial justice. And speaking of political candidates, later on in this podcast, I'm going to tell you why the revival of Joe Biden is not necessarily a good sign. But coming up next, the executive director of Color of Change, Rashad Robinson, joins me. Rashad, I'm just mostly, I mean, there's a lot of things that I find impressive about you, but I guess as somebody who has been a journalist now for 20 plus years, and I know how it is just trying to keep up with the news, but you not only have to keep up with the news, you have to have the bandwidth to talk about it, discuss it, come up with an action plan for it. It's, it's like you are solving the world or trying to solve the world's biggest issues all at once. Racism, uh, what's going on in Hollywood, voting, suppression, all, like all these issues issues and how in the world do you have the bandwidth to do all of the things that you do and that you speak to yeah well that's the power of leading an organization is that you know it's knowing that I don't have to um it's knowing that my job is to um set an agenda and I do have to know a lot about a lot of different issues and I sometimes complain about that to my staff because I'm like now I gotta. Now I have to be in the intricacies of algorithmic bias and and Facebook and Twitter. And next day I'm like talking about criminal justice, or the next day I'm talking about issues of the economy. But Color of Change really benefits from having one of the most incredibly talented multiracial staffs led by Black um, folks um, who are driving the work every day. And I get 
um, an opportunity to benefit from all of that talent. We also just have this theory that people don't experience issues, they experience life. That the forces that hold people back are interrelated. A racist criminal justice system requires a media culture to keep it alive. A political inequality goes hand in hand with economic inequality. And so because those forces all collude to hold people back, we can't just say we're going to deal with this one issue over here because they all... Racism is a shapeshifter, and it will shape and shift depending on the circumstances. And so we have to be prepared to build the right type of power for our people to deal with all those issues. Well, understandably, because this is 2020, major election, obviously, coming up this year, the presidential election. Um, one of the many things that you all have going on right now is certainly been aimed at the Democratic presidential field educating people about who these candidates are. You have a great podcast series, Voting While Black, uh, which I was able to binge watch or binge listen to rather. And for those who aren't familiar, I encourage you, especially because all the time we see in the social media and in conversations, people will say, well, what are, where do they stand on this? Or what do they think about this and this and that? And even though these candidates are putting out this information in one you know, collection of podcasts, you have everybody that you've talked to just about that either is currently in the field or has been in the field with the exception of uh, Joe Biden, I think. That's the only one. And Klobuchar. And Klobuchar. Those yeah. are the only two mm-hmm. you didn't yeah. get. So after going through all these conversations with Bernie Sanders, um, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Pete Buttigieg, which candidate do you think had the most or has been the most honest, authentic and thoughtful about race and the current problems of racism in this country? I think different candidates are thinking about it in different ways. And the reason why we did the podcast really was because we were hearing all these positions out in the world and we were like, well, how are they going to accomplish it? How are they going to work with movements? Who, how, they gonna, how are they going to actually achieve it? Not just the what, but the how. And so we really wanted to focus on that. You know, I was impressed with a number of the candidates. I was probably most impressed with um, uh, Sanders and Warren and how specific they both were able to get about and how clear their worldview was, how consistent it was. Like, regardless of whether you sort of agreed with everything, it all sort of really lined up. It wasn't like they were saying these grandiose things and then making compromises along the way that didn't make sense. You know, one of the questions I asked to all the candidates, um, the last question I asked to all the candidates was, you know, part of the political process is candidates coming to black communities and saying, we want to do this for you. We want to close disparities. We want to change things. But, you know, black people have contributed so much to this country, so much to our understanding of politics, of service, of progress. And so I asked each of the candidates at the end, like, who, can you name a black person that has helped you understand Um, better about service and politics. And those questions were sometimes just as illuminating as the detailed questions about politics because it's also about who do you, whose voices do you value? Who's in the room with you? How do you prioritize? And, you know, there was actually some really great answers from people who are no longer in the race. You know, I really enjoyed Julian Castro's question. He got really clear about, like, um, not just a a black activist um, in San Antonio who was friends with his mom, who then ran for office and seeing an activist run for office, but also, you know, he and I are kind of close to the same generation. He's a couple of years older than me. I had to remind him. But um, (laughs) he talked about seeing Jesse Jackson run for president and what that sort of possibility model meant to him of seeing this man gain all of this sort of uh, multiracial support running for president. And so 
Unfortunately, the field has gotten less and less diverse, but it also is a reminder of how important representation is and how important the field is and how important it is these candidates have to speak to and answer to our community, not just give us talking points. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because when you look at what has become a part of their platform, the fact that criminal justice is a major component of all the candidates' platforms sort of speaks to this importance that they feel like they know, any Democrat knows they cannot win this without black people. Period. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, it's just interesting to see how they've evolved their platforms to talk about, you know, the the racial wealth disparities and other things that I don't think I ever really remember being a part the common, you know, rhetoric that we're hearing. I mean, could you ever imagine a candidate for president talking about reparations on the stage? I, know. Ever, I feel like, like saying, every candidate like, was asked that. Like saying the yeah. word reparations. I mean, this is the result of movements, right? The result of people taking action and setting a new context. We talk a lot in the world about narrative change, changing, we need to change the narrative. But if narrative change is the rules and norms of society, what we view as acceptable, and then what we can also view as possible, and that space in between what's acceptable and what's possible, then so much has changed because the fact of the matter is, is that there are candidates being hemmed up on their criminal justice platforms that and their record that 10 years ago, nobody would have blinked an eye about some of that stuff. And to, to be able to say what you did 10 years ago that was perfectly kind of acceptable is no longer, quote unquote, acceptable now is a, is a result of movements building power and changing the context and, you know, and, and, um, and hopefully sending a message about, um, you know, not just what candidates say, but what they do. So you talked about the candidates whose answers you, you know, you liked about race and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. What's your sort of perspective on who has not been able to ask those questions about racism in America well? Yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely, definitely pushed Andrew Yang a lot and trying to have him really um, sort of dig under the hood of like, kind of fixes that are for everyone that sort of don't address justice. Um, and like so giving when, people $1,000 yeah, a month. You give everybody $1,000 <laughs> a month. You're not actually having a conversation about harm and justice and about sort of the unique barriers that various people have. You're just sort of putting everybody at a starting line that use an imaginary starting line at the same place when everyone's not at that same starting line. Oh, what did you, because uh, I, I have a ton of thoughts on this, but the fact is, you know, two of the black candidates, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, didn't make it that far. Um, and it felt like they should have made further. I had the the pleasure of sitting down with both and with Beto O'Rourke. And um, I was just really disappointed, frankly, by the way our community treated them. And especially seeing who's left in the race to say like, so you had a problem with Kamala Harris, but Joe Biden, we were still hanging in there with him. Yeah, yeah. So... In your mind, why don't you think Cory Booker or Kamala Harris were ever able to resonate in the black community? I mean, I think, like, we had eight years of Obama, so there wasn't sort of a... Uh, it, I think many people, it wasn't as historic for a lot of folks. Um, I think that both of their candidacies, um, I think they spent a lot of time trying to go broad first. And I, you know, I've talked to, I've talked to a lot of folks in black media who actually have a critique that they didn't get enough time with them. And so 
I don't know how much they leaned in to bet on black in the beginning. And you have to have your base first, and then you take your base and you go from there. Now, they might disagree. They both sat down for the podcast, but actually, they sat down much later than, than, than other a lot of other people did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the people who said yes early were like the Castros, the Bernies, the Elizabeth Warrens, um, Tom Steyer, Marianne Williamson. That was a funny one. <laughs> um, and um, all of that to say, um, you know, the... I think that those are cases. But yeah, I mean, I think we can be harder on our people sometimes. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't hold our people accountable, though. And I think that, um, I think looking back at most of my podcasts with Kamala and Corey, who I just have a tremendous respect for both of them, they were some of the best interviews. I felt like they were both really relaxed and clear, and both of them dropped out within like a week or two of that interview. <laughs> So um, it was your podcast that did it. It was not my podcast. I think they probably already knew they were heading yeah. out and like they were they were unleashed and they were probably better than they had been in a lot of other interviews in my opinion. Um, but they both are going to have – being in the United States Senate is huge. Either one of them can be on the, someone's shortlist for VP or a cabinet post. They've, they're both young enough where they've got – really um, serious careers in front of them. And so I think like this political season will give us a lot of opportunities to think about that. Mm. Um, When you look at like kind of where we are now in assessing, you do a lot with with black voter engagement. Um, How do you assess the level of engagement that young black millennials have? Is it as low as it seems to be or you have a different picture. Well, you know, in 2012, uh, young black voters outpaced all other young people in terms of voting, um, voter turnout. And so young black people, um, and if you also, if you look at like just the Obama victories, um, you know, Mitt Romney won the white youth vote. There's this story about like, you know, he didn't win the white youth vote the way he won, won the white senior citizen vote, but he won the white youth vote. And so if it hadn't been for black young people and Latino young people turning out, you know, Obama would not have had the sort of youth surge that he had. We don't vote enough in this country as a whole, right? Half the people don't vote. And so there's ways in which we could look at every community and think about sort of low voter turnout. But yeah, I mean, black young people in a lot of communities are voting at at similar rates to their communities, especially when you hold constant, like socioeconomic status and other things. So I think there's a lot of factors to why people don't participate. And race may be one of them, but it's not always a driver. There's so many other factors. Also, like, elections have to matter to people. And so we've been running this strategy around district attorney elections around the country. And it's just so excited. You know, there are 2,500 district attorneys, um, twenty over 2,400 district attorneys. Um, uh, 90% of them, nearly 90% run unopposed. The vast, overwhelmingly white. Um, but they're the most powerful actors in the criminal justice. I mean, I remember sitting with President Obama and talking with him about criminal justice at a White House meeting and him saying that, well, the local district attorney has way more power because over 80% of people are incarcerated at the local level. So even as we have conversations about things like the First Step Act or changing federal policy, people are actually 
it's local laws, it's state laws that are incarcerating people at the sort of rates that we're seeing. Not that federal laws don't need to be changed, it's just that the vast majority of people are incarcerated locally. And so we've been able to get involved in these district attorney races. And what we've also been able to do is show real upticks in young black people's turnout um, in places like Philadelphia and Chicago, where we've elected new district attorneys in partnership with local communities. Our PAC has been really involved, electing a DA in Philadelphia that was the former lawyer for Black Lives Matter um, and um, and Occupy, um, uh, uh, a district attorney and who grew up in Cabrini Green. Um, and like, and has changed bail and marijuana arrest in the in in the city, and has as a result re- significantly reduced the jail emissions in in that city. Seeing. Um, you know, district attorneys stand up to the uh, death penalty and not – there's a, all of this effort that's happening that is just so exciting. And young black people have been part of that. And in fact, the movements that young black people have driven from Black Lives Matter and from the sort of uprisings in communities have directly translated into this district attorney movement and have translated to all sorts of other activism, right? The fact that like – in the Philadelphia Starbucks, white people took out their cell phones and started taping that interaction was a direct result of the civic participation of young black people, of them taking out their phones, of them creating a whole movement of people tracking and paying attention to this. And so I think there are multiple stories to tell here, but I always I always have an aspirational story about black people's participation and, in fact, the ways in which young black people's participation um, has always been a force for making this country better. Yeah, it, uh, maybe it's just a media narrative that's yeah. just been creative. Um, or as you get older, um, sometimes you buy into this idea that young people don't care about certain things or you can, you know, I can certainly with some things start sounding like old woman yelling at cloud for sure. But um, everything that I've read has been built around this idea that there is kind of a low expectation for young black people to be heavy participants in this upcoming election. Is that something you well, yeah, I mean, feel like it's a real fear? No, it's a real fear. Like, okay. look, we are we are facing a, a kind of onslaught of disinformation. And what I mean about that is like there's misinformation that happens election. Like they send out flyers to our community, say if you owe taxes, don't show up to the polls. If you owe child support, don't show up to the polls. And we have to like fight back against misinformation. Then there's disinformation. Like the Democratic Party has taken you for granted. Don't show up. Um, to the polls or vote for Donald Trump. The reason why it's disinformation is because I would look crazy going out in the world and say, no, the Democrats have never taken us for granted. At the same time, voting for Donald Trump is not like an answer. And so, you know, there's going to be all sorts of that. We did these focus groups back in 2018 with young black people around the country. And we looked specifically at, um, and we really looked at working class. So this was not like digging, going to colleges, but looking at the largest number of young black people, which are like working class, underemployed, oftentimes not employed young black folks, you know, kids that were working at, you know, Verizon store, fast food, um, stringing together babysitting jobs, maybe in community college, um, and then obviously college as well. And so it had a real diverse range. And you know what was really interesting when you dug deeper, right? First of all, they were overwhelmingly Bernie supporters. Um, I'm still trying to figure this out. <laughs> and, so, and so I, I you know, yeah. and the great thing was it was a focus group. So we got to see some of the interaction. They don't believe in incremental change. Like telling people who work minimum wage that your life was better eight years ago 
is is this just a, not a true story or like that the presidency like whoever's president has fundamentally changed your ju- your life if you are being stopped by the police regularly in your community and so the the a candidate that sells them a story that the system is truly rotten and broken to its core and that there has to be a new way at least is a believable story for folks who cannot believe the narratives of whether it's black faces in high places mean something because they've that many of these people really only know an experience, maybe like a little bit of the Bush years and then like a black president who they still love. It's not like they, but the the underlying story about how much li- better their life was, um, how much better their things would be for them, um, don't actually play out in the numbers, right? If like black and white wealth income has continued to expand, even while we have more black millionaires and billionaires than we ever have, then telling telling um, poor black folks that their life is going to get better if we just tinker around at the edges, what's in what, what they see is that, oh, it may get better for my boss, um, but it's not going to really get better for me. And so I do think... Um, Candidates that are selling big change are oftentimes those that will get a second look. That's interesting to me because I think whenever people say or talk about young black millennials, I think they're thinking of a a Howard University student. Like they're thinking of somebody in college because they only associate the voting black with people who are, quote, educated enough to vote. So they're automatically thinking not with class at all Um, because you're right, like a lot of you know, working class, you know, young people, they have a lot at stake in this. And it feels like they have really been alienated from this this process because, God, I'm telling you, if I read one more story about the rural white voter, I'm going to kill somebody. Because I'm like, <laughs> yes. yo, man, it's three yes. people in their town, yes. all right? Yes. <laughs> you should be going to where yes. the majority yes. of people live. Uh-huh. And nobody has probably had... They're, uh, you know, they had the boot on their neck longer than working class black people. All right. Not to mention, they even forget that there are black people that live in rural areas that they never talk to. It's almost like when they say working class, they like just. It's white. That's white. It's like it's like a a stand in like like black people don't work like (laughs) the history of servitude and building this country like just doesn't doesn't um, make sense. You know, it's also also like we like the categories that we think about in terms of these groups like millennials. Right, millennials are not really the group that I think about when I think about young black people. It's Gen mm-hmm. Z. Like millennials are pushing forty, right? right. Um, and because like, I think eighty is the start of yeah, it. Yeah, so like, yeah, so yeah. they're they're millennials are going to start turning forty, and you know we so when we think about like uh, Gen Z and um, who you know who are voting in this election, you know those folks you know have um you know have a really clear teenage experience with, um, you know, a black White House, with um, black celebrities, um, with visibility. You know, I'm I'm 41. And so, you know, I have all these stories of like black people breaking barriers and and accomplishing things and being the first. And and and, you know, when I have young people that come to my office to work for us, they're their connection to these stories looks very different. Their connection to, um, uh, it's not that they don't appreciate it. It's like, it just looks different for them then. The same way that the things that my parents leaned into look different 
Yeah. Yeah. And you, I guess you later would come to kind of uh, understand what that is. So if you were, say, creating a black agenda for any of these candidates, what would you say to them need to be kind of the top items that need to be addressed? So first, we need a deep influx of jobs. And so infrastructure, you know, that um, thinks about our community and um, just in terms of totality of like health, climate, all those issues. We need a we the criminal justice system is broken to its core. But like I said, the most of people are incarcerated at the local level. But there's all sorts of stuff that the federal government can do in terms of grants and money, either holding it back or putting it forward to incentivize local communities to do better. The United States has 3% of the world's population and 25% of the world's incarcerated population. It is no mistake. Locking up black people is big business. There are so many people profiting from mass incarceration. And so undoing it actually has to, is an economic process and project. You know, we have, um, you know, in terms of like, when I think about sort of the like first thing someone should do when they get into office is we can't win if we can't vote. And the other side knows that they can't win if we can. And all the ways in which um, our ability to express our will for a better future through the ballot have been attacked and compromised all around the country. And so one thing at the federal level is really moving forward comprehensive electoral reform, because what that's going to give us is more ability to have power at the local level and communities around the country to be able to run the communities um, that we live in. Um, but I do think that we've got all of these like emerging industries, technology, green, green jobs, all these things that uh, we have to be part of. And that there has to be equity based in baked into it. There have to be ways in which um, reparations are part of that discussion. Um, we need an economy where people can buy the things that they need. And like, that's what we need. We need an economy where people, and that may mean things like universal basic income because of automation. Um, and I think we need the ability to try those things out in communities in Stockton, California, the stuff that Michael Mayer Tubbs is doing around UBI. I think we've got to have ways for communities to innovate as well, because um, our agenda can't just be about what um, a president and what it looks like right now, a white president decides is best for our communities, but we need more self-determination um, as well. Um, I think like those are some very clear things. The final thing I'll just say is that the ability for corporations to hold an outsized influence over our democracy and over our economy to literally write the rules that they benefit from over and over again, whether it's across the economy, whether it's across voting rights, whether it's access to health care, um, the environment, uh, criminal justice, that um, has to be dealt with because across every single factor, right, since 1980, all of the gaps that impact our lives, the disparities are going the other way. And there's no sign that it's closing. And so it's not going to close on its own. And so the final thing I'll just say is that we need a narrative shift. And so far too often, uh, folks think of inequality as unfortunate, like a car accident. And some of the presidential candidates describe it like it kind of just happened. 
and not unjust. And when you describe inequality as unfortunate, like a car accident, people get comfortable with charitable solutions to structural problems. We're so sad about what's happening in Flint. Let's send them some water bottles and we'll wrap it up. Uh, you know, those inner city schools don't have textbooks. Let's do a textbook drive while millionaires and billionaires are not paying their taxes so that those schools actually have books. Like, we um, should not be trying to fix problems in our communities through charity um, while those who have benefited from a country that has roads, um, has educated people, has laws, has all sorts of systems have, have won in the economy but don't feel like they have to pay back in. And when they don't have to pay back in, that hurts black people first. There's an old saying that when America gets the cold, black people get the flu. And that's what's happened on so many of those issues. And if we don't actually deal with corporate power, then making change on any of the other things that I've laid out just won't happen. See, you got to the core, and this is why you're so much smarter than me. You got to the core of why, and I've always tried to to try to get to the core myself, but I'll take the NFL, for example, with Colin Kaepernick. The reason that as much as it is a great thing that they have been able, the Players Coalition has been able to get these NFL owners to give them $90 million to try to address some of these criminal justice issues that they were working to try to fix anyway um, with, uh, you know, going to the to the hill and things they're doing in their communities. It never sat right with me because it didn't. They're happy to throw the money at the problem. Like you said, they're happy to make it charity and to say like, oh, I could just give here, but I need you to shut up about it and keep this out of my face. So this can just be this cause on the side that I donate to. And I was trying to figure out sometimes like, well, 90 million isn't a loss, right? Yeah. But at the same time, it's getting away from what is the central issue. One, Colin Kaepernick doesn't have a job. That's one. Yeah. And when you look at the structure of the NFL, that's not changing. It's never been a black owner. There are now two black head coaches. There's one, no, it's two now black GMs. What about that? Yeah. All right. Yep. Before you throw $90 million at social justice causes, which that's great. Can you address what the hell is happening in your own league? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is in essence how the status quo keeps their power in place, right? So they throw $90 million, right? And so they are, they're, a number of them all put it in, right? They don't pay their taxes. They got stadiums for free, <laughs> right? And so the cities that they're in, right, have failing, crumbling schools. Imagine if they were paying their taxes. They're, the schools would be funded. The, we, don't, we can't fund mental health in these communities. We can't fund education in these communities. So you, uh, these, these stadiums are in communities where it's easier to get a than it is to get an education. It's um, you can't get mental health training. You can't get all these things, and so they throw some money at it, and then we're to almost fix us, right? Instead of fix the structures, and so that I think has been part of how the challenge with hypercapitalism, the problem with um, rules that are designed to benefit a very small slice of people, have been set up is that we can be tricked. We can be tricked by Amazon to think that Jeff Bezos making a huge contribution around something but not paying any taxes is like helping us, um, and he's like so benevolent. Then we give him awards, we thank him, we say so nice, and then and then in the end we realize that he got away sky-free and we're left. It doesn't mean that we don't accept charity because we're in a really tricky situation around and all this, but if we're not actually working to change the rules, right, 
It's the difference between presence and power. And when we mistake presence, which is visibility, awareness, retweets, shout outs from the stage, charity. When we mistake that for power, when power is the ability to change the rules, sometimes written rules, other times unwritten rules. When we mistake presence for power, we think we've done things that we haven't done. We think a black president means that we have ended structural racism. We think that people celebrating our black celebrities on stage means that they love black people as much as they love black culture and they can hate black people and love black culture at the same time and those things don't actually have to contradict themselves. And so all of that means is that we actually have to build power. We have to challenge systems. And anything short of changing systems um, will actually just get us back to, it's like running, it's like we're on just a kind of one of those those wheels that a mouse is on and just running in circles because um, we will think we had victories only to t- come back around and find out we're in the same place we were before. I'm glad you brought up black celebrities because of the many problems on your long list of problems of which you have to speak to <laughs> and solve and create action plans for is Hollywood and the Oscars were recently uh, here in in Los Angeles so uh, we're going to take a quick break I want to talk to you about that I do actually have some fun questions for you. Good, Rashad, good, good. I feel good. like you never get these. Yeah, no, I would love right? some fun questions. Yes, right. I, yes. Again, yeah. I, I will at some point get you off of solving racism. <laughs> yeah. We're going to get to some fun stuff. All right. uh, so, more with Rashad Robinson when we come back. All right. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So before the break, you had brought up, you know, our celebration of of black celebrities, Uh, sometimes people using that as a replacement to challenge structures. You are challenging structures with black celebrities or within that culture and how you have been very vocal about the lack of diversity in the Oscars, not just this year, but just in general. And there's some other work you're doing to try to change some of the representation that's Mm -hmm. been there in in Hollywood. But uh, you tweeted out. Um, some interesting statistics from the last few years about what the Oscars have looked like for black people. In 2017, there was 18 nominees, four black winners. In 2018, there were 13 black nominees, three black winners. 2019, there was 15 black nominees, seven black winners. And this year, not counting the Obamas, one black winner, five black nominations. So, Why is the Oscars in particular something you feel like it's important to basically stay on their back about how they tend to exclude us from a lot, um, you know, of this celebration of what's supposed to be the biggest event in Hollywood? Why do you think it's important to choose this particular battle? Yeah, so... A couple of reasons. One, um, one of Amer- one of America's biggest products and exports is our cultural production, is the stories that we tell and we ship around the world. And whose stories get told really does shape who gets seen, who gets empathy, who gets heard. Um, so on one hand, that's really important. The Oscars plays a, a deep role in both uh, validating 
um, careers, um, making careers, um, and and as an economic vehicle, right? We know that movies that win an Oscar do have have bumps in their um, ability to uh, make money. Uh, we know that um, actors and actresses who um, win um, Oscars um, have um, bumps in their career and are able to um, make more, um, you know, advocate for themselves in different ways. And so sometimes people will say to us, it's like, why do you care what this industry, well, why do you care what, you know, about getting awards from white people? And and I will say like, you know, it's not really about, about awards from white people or white institutions, right? It's not about wanting to be celebrated. In many ways, it's about any system or any structure that sets up or it already has tons of barriers for people's full exclusion that then sets up some other system that identifies who should win and who should lose and then isn't transparent about how it does that, right? And so part of the challenge with the Oscars is that the results are by design. Um, the whole, the how you become um, a member of the Academy is there's a whole set of structural exclusions. Then, you know, they, then they don't require the people voting on the Oscars to actually have watched the movies. <laughs> which is crazy. Which is crazy. <laughs> and so people are then going to um, check the box for people they know. Um, they're not going to have to step outside. And so it's not some sort of like, oh, we're, it's just recognizing the best. It's, it's just, um, you know, and, and if the movie wasn't the best, it hasn't been nominated. It is a system that has all these structures in place. And then it has implications on people's careers and their livelihood and the economy. And it has um, implications on the stories that do and don't get told. You know, we did this whole report on crime TV. Um, and looking at the role that crime TV shows plays, and I just and I, I say this to say that Jake, these this is it's just not it just doesn't just impact like like our free time in the theater has deep impacts on what people think. All of the stories coming out of Hollywood, and so for the last twenty years in America, violent crime has basically steadily gone down, but people think violent crime has gone up. And so we worked with USC this past year, Norman Lear School, to look at all the crime TV shows and really dig into like how they are representing race and representing crime. We saw a whole lot of challenging things from the fact that all the shows had really diversified their cast, but overwhelmingly the writers' rooms were white. Like Law & Order SVU, set in New York City. Um, it's, um, it is a show about, about sex crimes. The writer's room is all white and 60% men. Um, Chicago PD, set in Chicago, talking about crime, right, has a writer's room of 90% white people. At the television critics up front, Dick Wolf, who's the creator of these shows and sort of the legend behind these, when asked by journalists um, about do these shows contribute to sort of the um, sort of the challenges we're having in the criminal justice system, he said, my shows are apolitical. Now, how could you write a show about crime in Chicago with district attorneys, police officers, communities, and call it apolitical? That is a political choice. You have to be living behind a gate with your head in the sand and not have seen the years of viral videos of black people being harmed on TV to say you can make a cop show that's apolitical. Um, it's that it doesn't matter to you. And so, the reason why we engage in this work is because we recognize the role that the unwritten rules play. And 
you know, I just like know that every time we're out on the ground fighting for change, we are dealing with a set of narratives and stories that people believe or don't believe. And our ability to pass a piece of legislation, our ability to get a type of verdict in a case depends on what people believe. And no matter how great the op-ed piece I wrote, right, no matter how great the debate one of my friends may have on CNN, it will not be as powerful or have as many eyes as some of the TV content, some of the movie content that shapes people's understanding of the world. And we have to push those institutions that want to make money off it to do better. Yeah, um, it suddenly every time that I sit down and watch a Law & Order SVU marathon just went through my head. But it, no, it's hard. I, I'm stunned that Dick Wolf would say it's apolitical when he literally rips stories right from the headlines yes. and follows them to a T. And many of them are... Criminal stories with a lot of political implications. So I'm just like stunned that that would be his answer to the yeah, question. Yeah, I mean, because they make all sorts of political and 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 um, uh, capitalist choices. Like one choice that we found in all of these shows. Well, first of all, one funny thing is like if you ever watch these shows, you'll see way more black judges than exist in the world. <laughs> totally. Right. And you know, and I'm not trying to like take the you no know, any jobs away from those brothers and sisters. I'm like happy, like get the job. But there's always a black judge, and they're always like a symbolic stand-in. Like they're kind of like every like older black person in your family. Like they have like the eye look. They'll like do the thing, and it's like it's it's it's. But they never have a backstory. They never have intention. What would it be like for a 65-year-old black woman to actually be a judge? That might be interesting. What must she think about the criminal justice system? But they're just sort of symbolic. Um, there's just symbolic vehicles for a white writer's room to make us think that everything's okay, that justice is being served, that we don't, that there isn't racism happening here, that we don't have to have real conversations about race in these shows. Um, and so, you know, these shows do a whole set of things where they'll put people of color characters in the scene when um, when the police officer is breaking the law or or avoiding a warrant or roughing someone up and the ends justify the means. The ends justify because the good guy is do, getting the the suspect. And here's the thing. One of the things about those shows, like if if the police officer does step outside you remember last season, he had an alcohol problem and got over it. Like, his wife left him. His kids don't really love him. And you're like, but he's really a good guy. He might have said that. He's just race. a terrible husband he's and like, father. Yeah, he's a terrible <laughs> husband and father. But, you know, he's going through some stuff. And I'm rooting for him because, like, he's the star of the show. And so, you know, part of this is, like, who gets to be humanized? Who gets full stories, full humanity? And who doesn't? And if some people are always going to be the hero and some people are always going to be the villain, then we've got to ask questions and challenge that, challenge the implications of that. And that, you know, for us is like why engaging in Hollywood is so important when like there are so many things that we could be working on every day. But, you know, some days I wake up and I'm like, we are just facing a set of stories. We don't you don't get to Donald Trump without the Trumpism, right, that has happened in the world, the stories and narratives that we've told ourselves and that continue to get told that he taps into and that he believes. And so our push to Hollywood is that don't get on the stage and rail against Trump if not deal with the Trumpism that you put out in your content. Mm. My grandmother used to say help begins at home and we're trying to help them begin at home. So along those same lines, I know something else that you were trying to change and, and um, 
you know, be an influence in terms of getting them to to have more responsibility for their content was with uh, these shows like Live PD, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And uh, Cops, of course, which, well, you yes, did a lot yeah, of work yeah, in terms yeah, of yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. trying to shapeshift that. Yeah. And, you know, First 48 and these all these reality yeah. television shows uh, that obviously are purposely trying to paint the criminal justice system in a more positive, fair light than it actually deserves. So uh, talk about some of the work that yeah. you did in, in that arena. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Like they call it reality TV, but you never see the reality of like the police officer sexually abusing the young women, right? You never see the- Which, you know, which happens which, which, in real which life. Which happens in real life. Like yeah. that's, that's reality. Right. So like show that. I, you know, we when we went after um, the Cops, a TV show, and we got it off of Fox, it was on Saturday nights on Fox for seasons, for years- it's like kind of considered the first reality show. It's on cable now, but it was it's off network TV. Um, it's considered the first reality show. It actually um, came about during the during a writer strike back in the eighties, and um, Rupert Murdoch actually uh, paid about twenty five hundred dollars. Just a, a fact, twenty five hundred dollars to some ska band for that opening bad for the saw. Um, um, so like, who damn it. I know they never thought it was like, you know, reality TV, you know, we're, they, bad they were probably the really happy yeah. like at the time. And now like look back after around. Um, but all that to say, um, you know, that show, um, I remember when we were like in the final discussions with Fox about, you know, them canceling. And we had like had a petition. We were about to have a big protest in front of Fox and then they were making decisions and like, and um, they ended up canceling the show as I was like heading to the airport from New York to Los Angeles, and they announced it. And they like, and then we, you know, and then I remember the the team called me was like, they just canceled the show. Do we still have the protest? I was like, no, I'm going home. We don't need to protest. We don't need to show <laughs> the up. The victory is ours. Yeah, we, yeah. we had a victory. Like, yeah. let's move on. But, but um, what I what I do remember them saying is is like, we could diversify. You know, we're looking at diversifying the suspects. Because one of the things, and you know, so that meant poor white people, right? And I was like, well, if by diversity, you mean taping this on Wall Street or on <laughs> right. Capitol Hill, where <laughs> crime real that diversity. really hurts people in deep ways, but like going and showing the impacts of the war on drugs on poor white communities is not going to make any of us feel happy. Doesn't make me feel like there's, that has been any victory for justice. And in fact, like if you think that that is how we play, like then you've like, have a different story about what we're working for. Um, and so, you know, these shows are profitable. They turn a profit and we've got, but a lot of things can turn a profit. And there are things that network TVs will and won't show. There's things that they won't show certain people in certain situations as, and we have to build more power. I was part of GLAAD during the era where we changed what was acceptable in terms of content about LGBT people. We faced down networks, we created consequences. And so I know that it's possible. Now, there are, I'm not making any false equivalencies between the power around LGBT issues and race and the history of black servitude in this country, which is unique. Um, but what I will say is that there is, a, there is um, organizing and power that we can build and there is um, consequences that we can create. And we, 
should be able to dictate the terms of how we are portrayed. It doesn't mean all of our stories are positive because they aren't. It means that our stories are fair, that they're inclusive, that there are um, array of stories. It means that um, we are we are seen in our full full portrait. And I feel like that, um, as someone who thinks a lot about, I think a lot about like the world my niece and nephew um, have, like the 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 opportunities that they that they could be denied before they ever get in the room. You know, the 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 empathy and respect and benefit of the doubt they may or may not get. Um, you know, you think about it in your own life, but it just becomes more real when you see it in reflected in the eyes of someone that that is your blood and it looks like you. And and I think about that for all the young people coming up. And and that is why cultural work is so important because it is already illegal to kill unarmed black people. We can create as many more laws to hold police departments accountable, but if juries don't view our humanity enough to hold police accountable, then they know they can continue to kill with impunity without any consequence. And, the, and no particular law will change that. We have to change written rules and we have to change unwritten rules. Yeah. Um, well, on the other flip side of that, do you feel like maybe some of the work that you've done or just maybe even a culture shift with how we look at uh, criminal justice has helped there become more stories told from the other perspective. Um, one of my guilty pleasure shows is Love After Lockup. <laughs> I love yeah, that show, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Judge me, I don't care. So, <laughs> but I will say, I mean, it's 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 the gist of the show is about people who wind up falling in love when one of them is in prison, right? But I will say, and they probably, I think, tried to do this. When you find out what somebody's life is like on probation or when they just got out of jail, it really crystallizes how difficult, quote, reentry into society, you know, actually is. Being unable to not just get a job, but, you know, certain things uh, felony-wise. I had Ben Crump on the podcast recently, and he talked about how there are certain states where you can't even get life insurance if you have a fel felony, which I had no idea is the case. So. On the other side of it, between that, I know 50 Cent has a new show coming out that yep, yep. is from the perspective of somebody who's in jail, wrongfully been accused, that there's at least, it seems like a little bit of an effort to try to tell more balanced stories. That this is not just about what the cops experience and detectives and all that, that there's another side to this too, also yeah. experiencing a great deal of trauma. I mean, we've been pushing and yeah. the public has been pushing and this is part of the fight. And we, you know, we don't believe we're the people that are gonna write and tell these stories. We wanna till the soil so more of these stories can be told. And you're absolutely right. Like the system is working exactly the way it was designed to create this this revolving door of people coming in and going out. Like our probation and parole system, like, you know, w when people get to actually see it and hear about it on camera, when they are really brought into the stories, I think most people would be like, well, I probably wouldn't survive under, under that type of scrutiny, under that type of surveillance. And I just, I think that we've got to, um, have real conversations about what safety and justice look like. And for far too long, safety and justice has been about, you know, locking up black people. Um, 
in many ways as an economic vehicle. Um, it's helped small rural communities around the country and placated communities that were left behind in other ways and not given sort of their fair share and, and, and industrial sort of advances hurt those communities. And so now they become prison towns and they're advocating. You know, in New York State, for example, um, the vast majority of the prison population comes from about seven downstate counties. You know, you can kind of imagine them from Westchester down to New York City into Long Island. And, um, but the prison population is all upstate. Now they are counted upstate when uh, congressional lines are drawn, when funding is made for like, when funding for a portion for like services. And so these communities now have all of these folks who can't vote in their communities who are now, um, um, providing jobs because the prisons are jobs and the communities where they come from, where they will be going back to um, because these, the communities where they're housed are designed for them not to like they, the buses pick them, pick up, you know, and for family members that have been incarcerated upstate in my family, the buses get them and they bring them back home. And um, you know, all of these systems are designed to keep the structures in place. And so part, and that is why activism and advocacy is so important. And that's why being strategic is so important. You know, we're dealing with bail reform right now and we're like pushing on bail reform. And one thing people don't understand, and we deal with this at state houses all the time, is that, you know, people think about bail as like local bail bonds, you know, folks. We see some of like the the reality shows. Uh, uh, what was the... Uh, there's a dog, dog the and... Yeah, he's, so, yeah. yeah he threatened to Bonnie, sue... Bonnie the dog. He, he, he threatened to sue us. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, he like <laughs> sent us some like poorly worded threat letters um, from his lawyers. Um, and, um, and so what we, um, you know, what we... What we know about that is that they become the face, but actually the bail industry is backed by a $2.5 billion insurance industry, right? And so the public face of it is like not rich, but like bankers, for instance, which um, doesn't say anything about bail on their website, um, you know, is, is one of the top 10 um, backers of the insurance company. You have all these major insurance companies that are backing it. So now they're lobbying to keep bail in place. They are lobbying to keep laws in place. And sometimes they are putting money through other vehicles where it's not seen like the insurance company is the front line. And so taking away bail means this, these folks will lose this money. And so they are going to fight like hell to keep it in place. And they're going to use whatever arguments they need to to keep it in place. And that is why we need to fight like hell to, and so that's why we've done a whole lot of work to expose them, expose how much money they're making, expose what they're doing. And so when they show up to the Capitol, um, and they don't show up to the Capitol, the insurance companies don't show up to the Capitol, what they do is they um, give money to quote unquote black activists who will show up to the Capitol and who will sound like us and sometimes represent organizations that are similar to ours and they will parrot. Well, this is gonna hurt the small businesses, the local bail bonds um, and people need bail and you know, the whole process. And we then can come after them and say, well, where did you get your money from? Did you, are you being paid by the insurance companies? Well, kind of, not really. <laughs> and so, 
all of this for us, all of this sort of advocacy work, all of this is about how do we not just try to overwhelm the system, but how do we tell the right story? And whether that is through like changing the stories about the justice system um, through TV or whether that's on the ground through news of changing how people view the incentive structure, who's benefiting, who's profiting, who's winning. And um, because the fight is, is, to, um, is to change that. Not to mention the other major component that people don't talk about is that there's a, a very significant percentage of people in jail who are only there because they couldn't afford bail. And, that, and not because they actually did it, but because they just couldn't afford to. Unfortunately, someone like Khalif Browder is like the most horrible the example. The most horrible like example the, the great Bri- The great Brian Stevenson always says, you're better off being guilty and rich than innocent and poor. And, um, and that is what the system we have. And it doesn't have to operate that. United States and Philippines are the only world democracies that have this type of bail system. So it's not even something that exists everywhere in the world. It's just something that we have because we have baked in profit to every factor of the justice system. And so the justice system is not about safety. It's not about um, any type of rehabilitation. It is a system that, that is at its core um, about building and maintaining a profit structure for elites. So uh, something that Elizabeth Warren, she said when she did the podcast with you was it's the inside and the outside together that they fear. And I thought that that really struck me. Um, We have had this debate in our community forever about is it better to press the system from inside or from outside? Considering that most of these structures and systems were never created to ever include us, what's your viewpoint about how that inside, outside can operate in tandem? Or maybe they can't. Well, they can. And, but I think that we have to like not we have to not be Pollyanna about it all and that the inside structures uh, will corrupt and and that we have to sometimes hold our people inside accountable and outside forces don't always live up to um, their responsibility and can at times, uh, yeah, not shake their responsibilities. I think about some of our work around Facebook, right, and how the, we've been really trying to challenge the tech industry around everything from how the out the algorithms can discriminate right you could you until we won the recent battles with Facebook you could go on and only market jobs to men you could only market housing to white people there was like all sorts of ways in which these rules were you know by- bypassing things that we had won as a community before I was even born you know and and um I, I remember you know we were really in a back and forth with Facebook and not getting answers. We were trying to demand a full civil rights audit. And we had demanded a full civil rights audit of Facebook for them to like really dig in and hire an outside firm. And we were just getting stalled. And Mark Zuckerberg was going to Congress, the Senate to testify. And we reached out and we had a conversation with Senator Booker. And he was on the Judiciary Committee. He is on the Judiciary Committee still. And he um, you know, and he was one of the more junior senators on the committee, and so he wasn't going to get the early initial questions. So he pressed Mark with our question about a civil rights audit and got 
Zuckerberg to agree to do a civil rights order, which they have now been in the middle of. And it led to Facebook getting really mad and hiring a PR firm that um, attacked Color of Change. Uh, The New York Times exposed that they had hired this firm to like launch all these attacks at us. Never did we feel more powerful and a little more invulnerable at the same time that this like multinational corporation right? like yeah. jumping right like they're like like wow they're like coming after us and at the same time we're like oh also like what did they find um but um but all of that to say they um that inside outside right the, the ability for someone to work with movements engage movements when politicians and those on the inside want to tap down movements, don't know how to use them, when those inside of corporations um, want to excommunicate when we criticize and not realize that, like, you know, sometimes I will deal with diversity directors at major companies who will forget that they have a job because there's a movement of people like us on the outside, that the corporations don't create diversity programs because... They, they just magically they thought just it magic- was a good idea. Yes. They, they, they created those. <laughs> they created them because there was push Pressure. and press. Yep. And so figuring out how to work with us, how to um, navigate those, thinking about inside, outside, that's when it works best. But, you know, sometimes, particularly in this city, I will have um, people inside of major, you know, entertainment companies. It's like, you know, Rashad, you'll get way more you know, you'll get way more progress with more honey instead of the pushback. And I'm like, well, walk me through how that's worked for black people. Talk to me about like, I'm I'm always open to like very clear examples that like are structural examples, not one movie one year and then the next year nothing because you walk through those Oscar numbers. And that's a perfect example that when you don't fully change structures, we can mistake the presence of like two good years of Oscar nominations for the fact that the rules have changed and then everything realigns itself. There's a writer, Glenn Mazzara, um, who's who had this Twitter thread, and he's like a... I saw this. Yes. Yes, when he wrote about what he thought was at the core of why Hollywood yes. really has not changed that Changed, much. and he talks yeah. specifically about how um, there's a, a fear among a lot of white writers that they're not like not getting jobs because maybe they weren't as qualified or they were, or they were competing in different rule setting. It's because they're just giving these jobs to like women and people of color and that they are nominating and rewarding stuff that they could have worked on, that they could have been part of because, and because the rules of who becomes a part of the academy haven't changed enough that the voting bodies are not diverse, they can continue to reward themselves and then validate sort of their own existence. And Glenn is a white guy. Um, he um, is, you know, work, Walking Dead, a lot of great um, uh, uh, credits. So it's not, this is like a person who's working and a person who's um, um, part of the WGA and has, and has actually reached out and we've done some work together. Uh, but to see that, it was, it was just so clear, but also just an example, right? If you don't deal with the structure and you expect charity or kind of like, changes around the edges, benevolence, you know, like Silicon Valley saying we need to do mentorship programs or pipeline programs because of our diversity problems or because black people um, are not as advanced on STEM 
And then I like dig into the numbers and I'm like, okay, Twitter, I appreciate that. But you know, maybe 20%, 30% of your jobs are STEM jobs. What about the lawyer and HR jobs? You mean you don't can't find no black people in Oakland to come up to the Valley and work in HR? Like, um, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's a frustration I also have in media because when you look at the number of black journalists that have left the profession Mm -hmm. over the last five or six years, it's an astounding number. And I have challenged a lot of the people in those positions, and I definitely did so when I was at ESPN, is that, yeah, that's great. ESPN, much like a lot of media organizations, very pretty team picture because you might have seen me or when she was there, Carrie Champion, Michael Smith. Like, it was a lot of us that were there. But once you peel back one layer and then you saw that there was hardly any of us that were producers, hardly any of us that were senior coordinating producers, hardly any of us in charge of full shows or, um, you know, in charge of significant portions of the network's programming, then it became like very clear about what a lot of the issues are. And look, NABJ, the National Association of Black Journalists, has existed for like 40 something years. Every summer, 3,000 black journalists get together and have an annual convention. We know where all the journalists are. AAJA has one. NAHJ. All of the minorities have a journalistic organization. And then y'all get together every four years. For the the unity unity conference. So it's like it happens. So literally all you have to do is show up with a table and some jobs. And you would find us. But yet... You go and you look at outside of, I would say, some of the major newspapers, like a Washington Post, they're going to be more diverse. New York Times, more diverse. Though some days you can't tell. But still, technically, they're going to be in a little bit better position. But there's no excuse in all these other media markets why they don't have any black journalists. And um, I've talked to people ad nauseum about it because when things like the 2020 election pop up, that's how you get slanted uneven Mm -hmm. coverage like that um to the inside out part i just want to ask you a a quick follow-up is is it is it possible you talked a little bit before about hyper capitalism but are we just kind of setting ourselves up to fail while we're inside these structures and trying to like achieve two things at once getting some sense of justice but yet making this money too it feels like there at more points than not, you have to make a choice of which one you're going to do. And I think about somebody like Jay-Z in those terms, who has become a who is a hell of a businessman, first hip hop billionaire, doing all these things and also giving very generously to social justice causes. But part of the reason I didn't like the NFL partnership is because of what you talked about, because that's not going to address the structure. So I'm just wondering, how can we reconcile with both? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is one of the challenges with how people have been educated about how change happens, right? I think there's just like a lot of magical thinking that happens, right? I mean, like, you know, we're not going to sell T-shirt our way out of structural racism and the incentive structures that have put the justice system the way it is. We're not. And and at the same time, like people like Jay-Z have a huge platform to reach a lot of people. And, you know, he's worked with our organization. We did, um, we worked really closely with him on op-ed piece, in op-ed pieces in the New York Times. And, and Was that and, the one about the, the Rockefeller laws? Yeah. Oh, yep. that was brilliant. So, yeah, oh, so that we, was really so we, good. So, so, so we, yeah, we did an op-ed piece with him on um, uh, Meek Mill. Um, and um, And so we've like, 
partnered with him on a number of different things in the past, um, in, like in terms of like criminal justice, and really appreciate people who help us reach more people, right? And so I think like that um, that sort of um, yeah, I mean that that effort, uh, that engagement um, is important. At the same time, I think that it's really important that those um, people who have big platforms are connected to movements, are connected to people who are on the ground doing um, work in deep ways, into organizations who are running and winning campaigns and are accountable to communities. And when sometimes they're flying in the air and not always connected, um, we can sometimes get preached at about how change happens, about how business actually works. Like, we know how business actually works. We actually know that, like, the NFL owners who are giving money to criminal justice reform are not paying their taxes. They don't have to pay taxes. And so, yeah, they're going to give some charitable money to criminal justice reform because that's easy. And then our schools are not funded. Our hospitals are not funded. All of the sort of inputs that actually make communities strong that we know reduces crime, that reduces sort of the challenges that changes. And so I, I, I really think that um, it's important that more people's voices are on these issues. And I'm like excited when people raise their voices and engage. I also think that we have to be strategic about it. And we also have to recognize that um, there are many status quo forces that will align with us, but not before us. Yeah, that's a very small but significant difference. Uh, um, I've been really critical of, of the Miami Dolphins owner, Stephen Ross, who owns Equinox. Right? That's mean, a perfect example. Yeah, yeah. He has this organ social justice organization, Rise. Yes. They have done a lot of good work, but you can't be doing that and then holding you know, multi-million dollar fundraisers for Donald Trump. Yeah. And it's just like you're you're either you're only doing that either to placate or you're not serious about it. Yeah. Because if you are serious about it, that means you might have to sacrifice a relationship or you might have to sacrifice you making additional money if you're actually serious about the work. And I just can't take him seriously because of that, as with many of the owners you mentioned who all give willingly and freely and are happy to keep uh, Colin Kaepernick out of a job. And to keep Donald Trump in the White House. Correct. They and want so, that to be and the so case. If you, are, if you are donating significant amount of money to keep Donald Trump in the White House, and on the other hand, you come to us and say that you want to fight with us for justice, I just have to ask, a qu how? Yeah, <laughs> you can't be above both. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. work that way. Yeah. So how do you, on a personal level... Um, before I get to finally get to the fun questions, how do you, on a personal level, deal with doing this kind of work? Because, um, you know, I know you see the successes. You see what's being changed. But I know you also probably got to feel like there's some setbacks. Oh, all the you know, time. All, all the time. All so how do time. you mentally kind of withstand that yeah. what is often emotional, unrewarding work? So if I wasn't doing this, I would want to. Like I see the stuff happening in the world and I I feel like so grateful that I wake up each day and I get to be part of doing something about it. And I don't know what I would do with myself if like what my what I do with my energy, who who I would be to my family and friends if like I couldn't use this energy. Um 
towards what I'm working on. At the same time, like, yeah, I, you, no one can be on all the time. And this is not a... Um, and no one should expect any of our leaders to be on all the time. My... My also, I don't think I'm gonna like. I should die at my desk, right? I'm I'm running an organization, and I'm trying to build a piece of infrastructure that someone else should be able to run one day, and that that and, sh and should last beyond my leadership, and should have impact beyond the things that I can touch, and that is important as well because um, we can't make these vehicles about cult of personality or one person. Now, my job is to lead, and I have to be the very best at it, and I have to like dig in, but I also have to build a team of leaders around me. And, you know, at Color of Change, I feel really proud that we've done that, like with just like, you know, really incredible leaders like Arisha Hatch and Brandy Collins Dexter and Rashid Shabazz and um, Jennifer Edwards and Scott Roberts and so many of the folks that lead the various areas of our work and are just running and winning um, like these amazing campaigns are um, one of our campaign directors Jade drove this campaign at the end of last year where she took on um, um, wedding magazines, a whole set of wedding magazines outlets um, and got them to stop promoting plantation weddings, right? Opened up a whole conversation about how we think about plantations, how we talk about plantations. Front page of the New York Times, like uh, stories everywhere. At first, like some of the, like, the, the not and, um, and Pinterest, you know, agreed to the terms. A couple of ones wouldn't return our calls, like Martha Stewart Bride, and then they eventually did after the New York Times story ran. But even in that piece, right, we had, um, you know, this plantation owner who hosts weddings say that his plantation was a good plantation because they taught them to read. And I was like, read what? And then I was just like, you know, I like it. Oh, I, I, mean, I know I breathe hard. Deep breath. Deep breath. I know. Deep, deep in the New York Times, he was like, well, our plantation wasn't uh, a bad one. I was like, ah, oh, man. But I was also like, you know what? Like, this is good. Like, this is the stuff that actually has to come out. Like, these are the conversations. Because if we can't actually then engage in that conversation, then, then, like, it's all happening. And now we're having all these conversations with plantations about how are they going to create space to tell the full story on their plantation or else they'll be on our list, right? <laughs> like, how will they tell the a more historical, accurate story that these are not places of simply of innovation and farming. Uh, these, are these are places of forced servitude. So just, it's, you know, long answer to your question about it, but I like get to be part of, of like stuff that is literally changing conversation. And I also get to work with people that day in and day out um, find ways to inspire me. Well, that's, um, that's a terrific perspective to have because you're right, even as sometimes as frustrating, I'm sure, as some of conversations like that can be. You like to think everybody, I don't know, set up, sat down with a basic history book and realize that, you know what happened on some plantations? Yeah. Slavery. Yeah, right? like, like we taught the slaves, how, they taught the slaves how to read. I was like, like, were they was free like, to go? I was like, I was you like, answered but, your own like, question. But what did you let them read? Like even, like, I was like, I was like, you taught you know, them. Yeah. What it's was not like they were rolling to the library. Yeah, exactly. So, yes. yeah. Um, all right, now the fun yeah, stuff. Yeah. Game I like to play with all my guests is yes. called This or That. You get two choices, Rashad. And two. I have to, and I have to. You have to pick one. All right. This is a hard one. Okay, 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 okay. That's okay. right, because right, I got some tough ones in all here. Right. All right. Um, do the right thing or Malcolm X? 
Malcolm X. <laughs> you hesitated. I saw it. I did because I I, I, I like them both. Okay. Yeah, I, a lot. Yeah. Uh, living single or girlfriends? Ooh. Um, living single. Mm. So uh, you share with well, this me. This is really hard. Yeah, like, they I only got get friends in these. I got friends <laughs> happening. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They only get harder yeah, yeah, as you yeah, go. Yeah. Uh, you disclose to me off air you're a yeah. big fan of Greenleaf, as yes. am I. Yes. So charity or grace? Uh, grace. Uh, grace. <laughs> I'm like grace in my, I'm a grace in my family. And, and I have to constantly bail out charities. Oh, like okay. I constantly have to deal okay. with charities who are having all the fun and, um, just causing all the problems. Um, yes. <laughs> I, you know, your, your charities, uh, they, they have as the quintessential trying to find my place in the family. Also, I'm the oldest. Oh, okay. So like I have a special place for the oldest who has too you much have to deal with yes, that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, insecure or Atlanta? Insecure. Um, and that's a hard one too. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's a really yeah. <laughs> but it's not as hard as this next question. The final question. All right. All right. Would you have taken four more years of Donald Trump if it meant Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum would both become governors? No. No, really? Four, four more years? Four more. No, I think like if, if we if we could go back in time and say Stacey and Andrew Gillum would have won their governorship, but you have to take four more years of trouble. They are both dear friends of mine. Andrew, I've known since we were both twenty one. Uh, we have went through leadership trainings together, um, and I love them dearly. And I look at what's happening, what's happened with the Supreme Court. If we get if four more years, I look at all the structures. And um, and so four more years of Trump. I mean, I I know I don't I don't, <laughs> and I don't think that they would ask me to do that. Okay. Um, knowing them, I don't think that. I mean, Stacey's gonna be president one year, um, one day, and um, she said it. Um, yeah. And Andrew's gonna be whatever he wants to be. I I think he'll be eventually be governor. And so I think that they're both going to be there. They're, they'll and get so there I, anyway. I I have a belief that they will both be. Where they were, where they would be, and so I, I'm not gonna trade Donald <laughs> Trump for for him. No, 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 no. And, they, and because I love them both dearly, they, I know that they would they not would ask, agree. They, with they you. would agree. I, at least I hope. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know if I were one of these candidates that won the uh, the Democratic nomination, I probably pick from one of those two. Yeah. So, so if you said four more years of Donald Trump, and then Stacey Abrams becomes president. I don't know. I, uh, I still, that's a tougher I, one. Yeah, that's a much Should've tougher one. one. That's a much tougher uh. one. But like governor, <laughs> governor judge, like I just said, that was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Never been a black governor in either place. I know. Oh, I know. Pretty I know. powerful I know. states. I know. Florida but four, and Georgia. But four more years of Donald Trump means that we could end up with Ivanka as president in 2024. Okay. And because, you know, they put their name on everything. And if we let yeah. them put their name on the White House. That's why I, I feel like the only person <laughs> that can save us is The Rock. It'll be him. <laughs> the, yes. the Rock yes. is going to be president yes. one yes. day. It's going to be yes. him. Yes. Mark my word. It's going to be The I Rock. Mean, I mean, anything is possible. As we have said. Uh, yes. All right. Yes. Um, Rashad, thank you so much, not just for being here, but for the work that you do. I implore anybody who does not know uh, a lot about Color of Change, please go to their website, colorofchange.org, correct? Yep, colorofchange.org. Yep. just see all the fantastic work that they're doing in our communities. Most importantly, if you have gotten nothing else from this conversation, 
you need to fucking vote yes. in 2020 yes. and not just vote for the president. You yes. need to vote, especially in your local elections. A lot of these people who are making these decisions to turn our communities um, or putting them under siege are people who, as you mentioned, do not even run against anybody. They run unopposed, not just them, but school board commissioners, sometimes police commissioners in a lot of these neighborhoods. So you have to stay engage because that's the only way a lot of this is going to turn around so um rashad is getting out of here i'm still sticking around final segment up next fucking i'm bothered know if you guys have seen this video but uh, there's a video that circulated for a while on social media and every now and again it's brought back because people use it as a meme where it shows a casket that's on top of a flatbed of a truck that's riding down the freeway and then about five or ten seconds into the video a man rises from the casket scaring the shit out of anybody on the freeway uh it's pretty funny i've even used it as a caption and as sometimes as a meme that however is the perfect description of what has happened to Joe Biden's presidential campaign. He was dead, dead, I tell you. And like a great phoenix, he has risen. Actually, it wasn't that. What had happened was people other than white people started voting in these primaries. Once we got out of Iowa and all the other super white spaces, Joe Biden returned to the position that he has never left, which is the preferred candidate of Mima on them. Now, even though it was predicted and expected the return of Joe Biden as the candidate to beat and before y'all Bernie supporters start yelling, I know your guy is still in it as of the taping of this podcast and it will be a fight and blah, 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 blah. But this moment ain't about you right now. Anyway, as I was saying, the return of Joe Biden as the candidate is sad because it proves that once again, white male mediocrity is still a thing. It rises. You can't defeat it sometimes. The last white guy to get this much credit for being next to a black superstar was Steve Kerr. No, I'm just playing. Um, but in all seriousness, Joe Biden's standout qualification in this campaign has been he was Obama's boy. He was vice president. He was his buddy. He was cool Uncle Joe invited to the cookout. The white uncle you didn't know you wanted or needed. We have seen this man fumble, stumble, present almost nothing of substance. And yet here he is potentially a stone's throw away from the presidential nomination. I will literally vote for this microphone I'm speaking into right now if it means getting 45 out of office. That's not the point. The point is that we keep doing what we're doing. We're going to keep getting what we're getting. The person I feel sorry for in all of this is Elizabeth Warren. I dare you to listen to this woman for five minutes and not be impressed. Yes, I voted for her. She literally has a plan for everything. I mean, everything. Wiping out student loan debt, addressing the racial wealth gap, education, literally all of it. And yet we're back to the mediocre white dude. I get it and I don't get it. I get that a lot of black voters are voting for someone they think that moderate white people will vote for. Don't try to deny it. Black voters have been forced into this because a lot of white folks proved in the last election. Y'all can't be trusted. A lot of us thought, nah, they ain't crazy enough to elect a bigoted, incompetent racist. And then they elected a bigoted, incompetent racist. So a lot of us said, OK, white people, just so you don't go completely off the tracks, send America into the depths of hell again. We will find someone you like that we can tolerate who isn't so obviously racist. And ta-da, Joe Biden. 
We're supposed to vote based off ideals. We're supposed to vote for people who can move the country forward. We're supposed to vote for people who want us to be better. Okay, Bernie Sanders people, you can enter the chat now. I don't agree with everything your guy says, but the reason he's having trouble carrying black support in some spots is because he's been labeled as a socialist. Right or wrong, fair or unfair, and black folks know that when white people hear that, they are immediately ejecting themselves from the Bernie train. Which gets me back to Elizabeth Warren. I used to be hopeful that we'd see a woman president before the aliens took us out. Though at this point, seeing everything that's happening here, the aliens are probably thinking, eh, we're just going to skip right over them. They'll take care of themselves. Anyway, Elizabeth Warren deserved better. And the news media largely acted like she didn't even exist. She is everything we say we want in a candidate. And for my people who are thinking, but does she have a black agenda? Yes, she has a black agenda, a blackity black agenda. Too many people just didn't bother to read it. By the way, speaking of qualified candidates who deserve better, shout out to Julian Castro. Only presidential candidate to mention Sandra Bland, Philando Castile, Black Lives Matter, Stefan Clark. All of this by name on the debate stage. Dude is mega intelligent, thoughtful. He gets it. Didn't get a chance because we keep voting for who we think white folks will vote for and not. And I know this is a scary concept, not voting for people who actually might be good at this president thing. Stay unbothered. Mel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. <laughs> <laughs>